Welcome to episode 31 of the Going for Greatness podcast. There's a new name on this show, and that reflects the new direction of this podcast, which is sharing personal stories, emphasizing the nuances of how to reach your full potential, and discovering how people push themselves towards greatness. Today, we're talking about the greatness of creativity and how that affects the world. My guest, world-class architect, Lev Liebeskin. Well, hi, Jen. Nice to be with you. Um, architecture impacts the world in many ways. I mean, it's in many ways, it's political. You know, it has to do with power, with money, with um, building uh, huge monuments to uh, governments and to uh, private actors. It's also culturally crucial. But beyond all of that, you know, I have to say that how could architecture not impact the world? Because it's about space. It's about what we all travel through. I mean, I'm often surprised by how architecture is, is not appreciated in the sense that movies are, for example. You know, people are so into movies, which they'll see a couple of times, you know, in a theater or, or on a streaming service, but they will live in a building or work in a building their whole life and never really question it. And architecture is really a civic art, and it has to be less about government, less about the powerful, rich developers, and I think more democratic and more conscious to most people, if that, if that makes sense. It has to be more – the awareness of it should be, should be greater and one of the things that I think architects have an obligation to do is to bring our art, the art of architecture, to everyday people. Because as I said, everybody lives in space. You don't need to watch a movie. You can be blind, but you're still going to be in space. When you're hired by a client to create a building, how do you start that process? It depends a lot on what you're doing and who the client is, but the, the basics are that you want to listen. You want to listen to the client, the client's uh, wants and needs for the project, and you want to listen to the place. Uh, you know, you want to go there in person, listen to the people who live there, listen to, because every place is different. Every neighborhood, even in the same city, is different. And so it's never about imposing a kind of you know, style or uh, architectural ideology on a place, but going there and trying to make something special that fits in that place, that fits the way that people, the rhythm that people work in, the way that people uh, wake up in the morning and walk their dog, or if they don't have a dog, wake up and jog, or whatever it is in that particular culture. And I've I've worked in in almost all the continents on Earth, and. Everybody is different, but what unites everyone is that there is a sense of home. And you want to make architecture which appeals to that sense of, of somewhere which is home. And home is both inspiring and new and creative, but it's also somewhere comfortable and somewhere that uh, you've always been and that you know. And so you never want architecture to break that sense of tradition. And that sense of uh, what makes a place home, what makes a place itself through history. 
you know, I've worked in Italy, I've worked in, in the States, obviously, I've worked in Africa, and you have to respect every place for what it is in itself. And I think that's kind of the key to, to, to a design. When you are hired to do a building that's maybe not so personal, an office building or a planned community, do you follow the same protocol where you go and you invest your time and figure out what the rhythm is in that place? Or do you listen more to what your clients are asking for? Or is it a blend of both? Well, look, without a happy client, you don't get to be creative. You don't get to do anything. So a good architect has to always respect the wishes of the client, listen to the client very carefully, um, and also balance that with the need to be creative. I mean, not to sell out. And that's not the simplest thing to do because, you know, sometimes there's a lot of um, money on the line and it's easy to just do something which is cheap and, and kind of uh, impersonal. But a good client, and I, I'm very privileged to, to be working with some really great clients who are also friends of mine, a good client will understand that, that creativity and understand the need for a building to be personal, to be emotional, to be uh, something that, that touches people, and which is, by the way, good for business because it means that people want to live there, people want to rent there, people want to work in that office building, people want to visit that museum. So I see architecture as a kind of both the art of compromise, but also an art of ensemble. So you are never alone like you are as a writer, for example. I love to write. I love to draw. <coughs> Excuse me. But it's not the same as a painting or a piece of music or a piece of writing in that you have to work with a client. You're both together in this with the developer, with investors, you have other architects, like a landscape architect, you have engineers, you have a whole gamut of consultants. So, and then of course the general contractor construction company. So it's really a huge ensemble, like a theater or, or a movie, as I said before, it's similar to that. And you have to kind of work with all these people to create a vision, which appeals to the ultimate client, which is the general public, you know, even if it's a um, an office building or a even a private home in some ways, you're going to need the municipality to sign off on it oftentimes um, because it has to be part of the neighborhood. So you're going to need to have this kind of appreciation, not just for art, but for realism, for how how the community sees your work and how it fits into that community. How do you approach sustainability? Well, I mean, there's lead certification, which uh, many clients ask for. Buildings I've worked on and the buildings I'm, I'm, I'm working on right now are usually uh, uh, lead gold, um, which is the second highest classification uh, after platinum. Uh, and sustainability is obviously an incredibly important part of, of building whether it's in cities or in rural places, you know, it's, it's really the uh, necessary for the architecture of the future. Having said that, I also think that there's a kind of a spiritual sustainability, a cultural sustainability, which is important, which is often neglected. So a building 
can be very green, let's say, but it also has to be spiritually green in the sense that it has to um, be sustainable over time as an idea and as a style, as an aesthetic, something that's not going to be seen 20, 30, 40 years from now as a kind of part of the past and something to be demolished or something that was just cheap and made for sustainability points. It has to be something that has a kind of long-term spirit. And it's almost like you're treating it more like a, I know this sounds strange, but like a person rather than just a bunch of steel and concrete and glass. If that makes sense. Can you expand on that? Can you expand on on how it's more like a person? What what do you mean by that? Well, that it has the buildings have emotion, and buildings have personality, and buildings are expressive, and there that expressiveness should be something which is, it's not just about flashy colors or having you know nice LEDs at night, but it's about the actual architecture which is has to be something um, done with passion, done with ver- a great care to detail and something which really appeals to people beyond just, you know, uh, the price per square foot. It has to be something which is born and has a long life. And that's kind of what I mean by, by a personality that it, 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 it kind of has a feeling of, um, of both uh, it, vibrancy, being alive, and also longevity, that it's something not just thought of in the short term, but thought of for the future. You come from a lineage of very talented architects. What would you say has been the hardest part of making your way in the world as your own person, your own architect, your own career path as as Lev, the architect? It's a difficult question because, it, to be honest, it hasn't been uh, that difficult. I, I can't pretend it has. I mean, I, you know, my, my father, Daniel, is a, is a very famous um, and, and world-changing architect in the sense that he was the first one, for example, or one of the first to kind of break the, the city block. Um, he was one of the first to have non-rectilineal windows, diagonal and, and strange, uh, unusually shaped windows. He was the first architect, I think, since the pyramids to build a building without a ground floor door, which is the Jewish Museum of Berlin, which I call my younger brother because I literally grew up with it. Having come from, from that, you know, I was, I, was, I, I was kind of grew up breathing this architectural air. And my difficulty is how to push the boundaries on that without betraying the values of that architecture that are part of my soul, part of my DNA, and something that I, I, I love and cherish, and yet not to um, be derivative or not to be duplicative, but to kind of push it in new directions while still having the same kind of um, uh, emotions, values, and spirit of, of my father's uh, work. I'm sure that it's not easy being in the same profession as a famous father, right? And um, if you're in the movie business and your father was Marlon Brando, 
that's got to be tough. <laughs> Your dad is a, a very famous world-class architect, as you pointed out. So were there challenges for you to chart that path also as an architect? I just described my biggest challenge, which is really stylistic. Um, but uh, honestly, it's, it, it's, it's a pleasure to work in this field that I've always loved and I grew up in. And, um, you know, there's no nepotism involved because we have different offices. We don't share any of the same clients. We don't give each other clients or anything like that. But I think that, you know, I try my best to do work that I hope that he would, um, that, that he would, uh, agree is is of a certain level and and shares a certain kind of passion and values of architecture. And I, I'll say this: the the tradition that I try to work in is my father's tradition, but it's an ancient tradition. In other words, the tradition of architecture is to do something new, which always new for each generation. So something which has never been seen before, but that also imbibes and and brings forward all that history of architecture. So in other words, for example, I live in Italy and uh, you know you look at the architecture of Michelangelo or Bernini and you see these great architects or Brunelleschi and at the time they were working, they were incredibly innovative and incredibly new. It's only now in retrospect that they look old because they've been copied over and over again so many hundreds and thousands of times so that we're used to their style. We've become inured to it. And it seems to us kind of traditional. When when you were there, when you were, you know, the Bauhaus is a good example of this, when, when you know, Louis Kahn first started uh, doing his buildings in Vienna or the rationalist architects in Italy like Tarani started working, people were shocked. I mean, this was completely alien architecture. But today it looks totally normal because it's become part of the culture and part of the tradition. And so when I say traditional, I kind of mean avant-garde in a strange paradoxical way avant-garde for that time but right. mainstream maybe for today exactly yeah. right i understand what Precisely. you're saying i understand what you're saying what's the most challenging part about being an architect put it this way architecture unlike unlike a painter a painter can draw on the canvas and this is what painters usually do draw and redraw and do studies until they get the the final artwork a musician or, you know, a, a composer does the same thing. They can, you know, play music uh, and write down notes until it's perfected. An architect, you can do only, a, you know, a, a, a limited number of sketches. I love to draw, so I do a lot of sketches. Plans, renderings, but you never know how the building will look in reality. So there's always a risk, a kind of a gamble a kind of a throwing of the dice into the future of what is this building going to look like and how are, are, is it going to feel to the people who, who live there and work there and visit it. And I think that's the most challenging part is to have that kind of ultimate imagination and to say, look, I will take that risk. And 
you know, I have to trust myself. I have to trust the people I work with. And this whole, as I told you earlier, this whole kind of ensemble of a team that creates a, a, a huge building. And we're talking about tens and, and often hundreds of millions of dollars. But you never know what the result will be until it's built. And that's, to me, kind of the biggest challenge. I'm going to play a game with you. Okay. Name your favorite building in the world. Go. <laughs> okay. I usually, up until recently, I used to say the Pantheon. A few months ago, I was privileged enough to go with a Turkish friend of mine to Gobekli Tepe, which is a recently discovered site in Turkey, which has completely upended the history of civilization. And I'll explain to you how. It's 20,000 years old. It is this monumental uh, I mean, it makes Stonehenge look like it was done by by toddlers. This monumental complex of gigantic statues and reliefs and 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 buildings uh, in central Turkey, and it's upended the whole theory of the world of civilization in the following way. So it used to be thought that they were, you know, we were nomads, we were hunter gatherers, and then um, for reasons of food uh, scarcity and efficiency. We started agriculture, and then that led to cities and architecture. But Gobekli Tepe has proven beyond a doubt that the people who created it were hunter-gatherers. So in other words, architecture precedes agriculture. And they actually think, there are scholars that say that the reason that humans started farming and shepherding is due to architecture. So the, the, the nomadic tribes, the hunter-gatherers, would keep on coming back to this place to build it. And because they were building it, they had to be sedentary and had to have food and, and, and uh, you know, uh, et cetera. So that really, to me, was very inspiring. That architecture precedes even food as kind of a spiritual nutrition for humanity. And so I think that's my favorite uh, architectural place, whatever you call it, uh, ever. You did some interesting sort of avant-garde things in your past, right? Can you remind me <laughs> of what your background is? I had studied um, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics from the Middle Kingdom. And I was about to go to Egypt in 1997, uh, but my career, my academic career in that was cut short because there was a terrorist attack in Luxor, which killed, um, I think, 30 or 40 tourists. Terrible tragedy, mostly Swiss and, and French and German tourists. And that really kind of changed my life I because they canceled UCLA, which is my alma mater, canceled the, the dig, um, which was right next to uh, where the attack was. And so my life went in a different direction. I, I, I subsequently got a degree in architecture from Cambridge uh, University in, in, in England. I studied under uh, Peter Carl and Dalibor Vaisley, who are some of the, in Dalibor's cases, were some of the uh, great kind of um, scholars of, of modern architecture. And then I had a, in 2008, I did an MBA at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland which is a famous business school. And that was pretty funny because it was, I got into the program and like a couple of months later, 
the Lehman Brothers crashed and the whole world was, you know, there was the whole financial crisis. And so my teachers literally said, okay, throw away your textbooks. Like Black Scholes equation, forget it. It's just worthless now. And we spent a whole year kind of trying to figure out what this new economy, global economy would be. And that was really fascinating. I'm not, you know, it didn't get me a job, but I made some good friends uh, uh, through it. So that's my background. That's awesome. Lev Liebeskin, thank you for spending your time with me. This was very enlightening and greatly inspirational. Jennifer, I am so happy to be on your show which I, as you know, I love, and I hope to talk to you again. Today, Leb Liebeskin shared how creativity breeds greatness in our own lives. I thank you for listening to the Going for Greatness podcast. This was episode number 31. I'm Jennifer Weissman. Please share this podcast with a friend.